Hey, Mark. Hey, Katie. Hey, you want to do a podcast? Yeah. Sweet. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to the Unforget Yourself Show, where we use the power of woo and the proof of science to help you identify your blind spots, get over your own bullshit, <gasps> so that you can do the fucking thing you actually want to do. Absolutely. I'm Mark. And I'm Katie. And we're the founders of Unforget Yourself and the creators of the Unforget Yourself system. Look, being a business owner is tough. Yeah. With vulnerability and with humor, mm-hmm. we'll be sharing with you the real stories behind the success of those brave and crazy enough to start their own business and to show you that you're not alone. You're not. Well, from the accidental entrepreneur to the laser-focused CEO, we have honest conversations about how they got to where they are today. We talk about the challenges that they faced and what they're currently dealing with in real time on their roller coaster journey. Along the way, we want to show you that it's, it's you. You are the most important asset in your business. Yeah, you are. So let's cut the bullshit and start the show. Enjoy. Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the show. Today we have Paige Arnoff Finn. She is the founder of Mavens and Moguls, a global network of seasoned marketing, branding, and communications experts who can do anything a marketing department, market research shop, public relations firm, or ad agency does. That's a lot of things. That sounds amazing. Paige, welcome to the show. Katie, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, you're welcome. Paige, could you, for our audience, could you please share a bit about yourself and about Mavens and Moguls? Sure. So, you know, it only kind of makes sense, I guess, in retrospect, When I grew up, I had no idea I was going to start a company. I always thought I would go work for a big public company. I I went to school thinking I was going to join big companies and maybe run one one day. That was the path I thought I was on. I got an MBA. I looked at people like Meg Whitman and Ursula Burns as role models. I worked at big companies like Procter & Gamble and Coca-Cola, and I thought that was the path I was on. And when the internet exploded, I got kind of bitten by the dot-com bug and got very curious about this whole technology wave that was happening. And I left my big cushy job at Coca-Cola where I was the assistant chief marketing officer, you know, big, biggest brand in the world, uh, big corporate platform. And I went and joined this startup that no one had ever heard of before out in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And in less than two years, we went public. We were sold to Yahoo. Then my husband got a job in Boston. So we moved to the East Coast and I joined another startup as the head of marketing. And then we got sold. And then I did a third startup as the head of marketing <laughs> and then we got sold and also mm-hmm. went public. So I, I call them my three base hits. You know, I'm I'm not Sheryl Sandberg. I didn't work at Facebook or Google or LinkedIn, but I made a little money three times and I had a ball. I learned so much. You know, my my early career, like I said, was with these, you know, huge brands, big budgets. And then I worked for these brands no one had ever, ever heard of. And then they got well known. And then 9-11 happened. And if you're old enough to remember, Mm -hmm. um, for those people watching and listening, when 9-11 hit, you know, that was just a roller coaster for the stock market. And people just panicked. Uh, They fired their marketing departments. They 
were worried that they weren't going to be able to raise any more money. So they cut their spending. And a lot of companies just held back on marketing. And um, I had just gotten bought out of the third startup at that point. And I thought I was going to basically, you know, be on the beach for a while. And before I knew it, um, a lot of the venture capitalists and private equity people that had made money at those startups where I was doing marketing called me and said, we have a whole portfolio of businesses and people that knew me in previous lives said, we need help with marketing and we don't know what, what to do. Can you help us? And, you know, I was never a consultant. I never worked on the agency side. I was always the client. I was the chief marketing officer, but I had all these people who were available that had just been laid off of work. I had all these people that needed help and I put them together. And um, yeah. I called the women, the marketing mavens and the guys, the marketing moguls. And for short, I called them mavens and moguls. And we really just hit the ground running. We had clients from the get go. And I built a website with a college buddy of mine. She wanted to learn how to program. So she did all the the programming. I wrote all the copy and that was going to be just to get us started. Well, that website lasted for about five years. I always joke, I'm the cobbler's kid. I'm the marketing company that does a terrible job marketing ourselves. But, um, but you know, it's been a wild ride. So that was more than 20 years ago. And here we are still having fun, still going strong. But I never would have guessed this would have been my path. All those jobs I was telling you about my longest job before this was three and a half years, and I've now worked for myself for more than 20 years. So I always joke, like, what happens if I get sick of my boss this time? I'm dead because I don't think I'm employable anymore. <laughs> I don't think I go back and work for anybody again. But it's still fun. And with all the ups and downs, you know, 9-11, the Great Recession, covid in a weird way, I feel like we're almost more relevant now than we were when I started because the world has moved to this kind of virtual hybrid model. And we've been very scrappy from the beginning. And, you know, I've got people in 14 cities around the US. I've got people all over the world in major metro areas. And we come together and form teams based on what clients need. So here we are. And, um, you know, it's kind of a long answer to a short question, but, um, but it's working and I'm, I still love it. Well, isn't that what's most important is that you still love it. And <laughs> yeah, there's no, you must be your best boss, obviously, if you stay, oh, <laughs> you know, I had some great bosses growing up and I had some terrible bosses and, yeah. you know, I do feel like having paid my dues, I've got all the kind of war wounds to show coming up the ranks in kind of a corporate environment and all the scrappy things you do when you're working at startups and you don't have the the big budgets. But yeah, I do feel like um I, you know, I love working for myself. I am a good boss. <laughs> <laughs> I had to laugh for a second there when you're talking about um you know, paying your dues. Cause I think so often, especially in this space when we're working with with younger people, the, it's such a different environment than it was 20 years ago, especially, uh, you know, referencing 9-11. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. 
you know, when I came out of college, people joined big companies, you know, mm -hmm. Xerox, IBM, Microsoft. You wanted to join a training program, you know, where companies invested in you and trained you. Maybe you did a rotation through all the different departments so you could see kind of where you best fit in. But when startups exploded, when the internet happened, and this whole entrepreneurship um, culture evolved, a lot of people didn't want to go work for big companies anymore. They wanted to work for scrappy entrepreneurial ventures. And when I ran those three startups as the head of marketing, I had a bunch of people working for me that never worked in a corporate environment before. And so, you know, I was older than the two founders of that first startup. I mean, it was your classic, you know, childhood guy friends that came up with the technology. And, you know, I was, you know, and that was, you know, that was uh, 1997 through 1999. I mean, that was a long time ago. And I was the old lady there. I was only in my 30s. And I was one of the oldest people in the company. Oh, yeah. I have to laugh thinking 1997 through 99 wasn't that long ago. Come on. <laughs> but it kind of feels like it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting. It's, I shouldn't say it's fascinating to hear how it, there's this shift that you going from the big um, corporate world into the scrappy world into on your own. What do you think is like what makes you tick in that way that you followed that rather than going the traditional direction? So, you know, my dad and both my grandfathers were both all commercial bankers. They worked at yeah. big banks for their entire careers. So I grew up feeling very comfortable in a kind of corporate business environment. Mm -hmm. And when I worked at Procter & Gamble and Coca-Cola, um, they were very structured, very hierarchical, and there was a career path at P&G. Uh, it's a promote from within organization. So you don't get promoted until someone ahead of you gets promoted and they don't get promoted till somebody ahead of them gets promoted. Mm -hmm. And like I said, you know, I wanted to be ultimately someone that ran a division or ran the company. But when you join at the entry level, which is the only way you can get into that company, um, it can take decades to get to the level that I was hoping to get to. Mm -hmm. And things move slowly. Um, and there's a process for everything. And P&G, it's an amazing company in every category they compete in. They are the market leader. You know, when you think about their products, Crest toothpaste, Charmin toilet paper, Bounty paper towels, Pantene. I mean, their brands are the stellar best brands in their categories. They are number one and sometimes number one and number two in the categories that they compete in. So it's interesting now looking back through the lens of having run my own business now for a couple of decades I'm amazed I was as successful as I was in that corporate environment because now I realize I was always someone trying to bend, break, and change the rules. My boss would say, okay, we've got a promotion coming up. Go do, drop a coupon, do an ad, blah, blah, blah. 
And there was a way P&G did everything. They had a method for everything. They invented brand management. And so my boss wanted me to follow the rules. And I'd come back to my boss's office and say, okay, I know what you want me to do, but I have this other crazy idea. What if, and my boss would like shake her head or shake his head. (laughs) Paige, I'm not asking you to recreate the will. I'm just asking you to go do what we need to get done. And I think now I realize I really was trying to be more entrepreneurial in a corporate environment. But again, you know, I joined Procter and Gamble in 1990. I joined Proc, uh, um, Coca-Cola in the late mid to late 90s. So this was before they were looking for like entrepreneurial people to shake things up in these big corporations. So mm-hmm. I took baby steps. When I got bitten by the dot-com bug in the late 90s, I left my cushy, you know, corporate job with my secretary and, you know, all the corporate, you know, I used to fly on the corporate jet. I mean, it was a great gig. And then I went and worked for the startup where I was one of the oldest people in the company. And, you know, in your corporate life, you dress up, everything's very formal. And Coke, you know, Coke's headquarters is in Atlanta. In that era, men didn't leave their office without putting their jacket on to go, whether they were going to the cafeteria or the bathroom, they didn't walk around in shirt sleeves. You could sit in your office Mm -hmm. casually, but when you left your office, you know, you were suited up. And Mm -hmm. I wore something very, you know, structured and formal every day. When I joined the startup, it was in Los Angeles, you know, in Santa Monica, five blocks from the ocean. People came in in flip-flops. They came in in shorts. They had tattoos. They had piercings. Their hair was crazy. It was like a complete whiplash. I mean, and, you know, when when I would tell people in the morning when they'd come in and we'd huddle in a, in a conference room with coffee and we'd you know, maybe we were going to go do some market research that day. Yeah. A lot of them never really had the, the discipline and the structure of like how to conduct market research at P&G and Coke. You'd spend thousands, maybe tens of thousands of dollars on research and it would take months and it was statistically significant. I mean, yeah. you, you know, it's like trying to, um, predict a presidential election. You talk to thousands of people, they fill out surveys, you do focus groups. Startups don't have the time or the money to do that. I would huddle my team in a conference room at first thing in the morning at nine o'clock and we'd come up with a bunch of ideas we wanted to get feedback on. And, you know, like I said, we were five blocks from the ocean and they would go out, fan out and stop anybody that looked like our target audience, which was like, you know, an 18 to 24 year old guy that looked like them with shorts and tattoos and piercings. And they'd stop them and say, hey, I've got some banner ads and I have some material that I want you to look at. Will you check out this packaging? Do you think this is cool? What do you like? What do you not like? And we'd come back to the conference room in the afternoon after lunch and we'd compare notes. And that night we would throw stuff out on the internet with advertising and packaging and pricing. And the next morning we'd come in and read the data and see, did they click on it? Did they buy it? Did they like it? And 
we were iterating in real time every single day. And research like that could take nine to 12 months at Procter & Gamble. We didn't, you know, when you're working on internet time, you have to be real-time responsive and you have very little budget to work with. It wasn't statistically significant, but it didn't take us that long to pull it down and try something else. And, you know, when you're iterating at that level in real time, in a week, you can learn a ton about your business, what's working, what's not working. So... I, I think I was probably cut out for a more scrappy entrepreneurial career path, yeah. but I had never seen that. Like my parents, you know, like I said, what, what, when you go to business school, those are not the, the cases. Those aren't the companies you study. You study IBM, you study Xerox, you don't mm -hmm. study a company five blocks from the ocean that no one's ever heard of. Oh, it's what I'm hearing is you were took all of this experience you had at the bigger companies and created a new way of doing it based on the constraints you had, which I fully believe that we produce our best work when we're the tighter constraints that we have. Definitely. And it sounds like as a result, you were able to marry those two worlds in a really amazing way. And because I did it three times consecutively for three different startups, you know, in three different categories, you know, one was in music and entertainment, one was in transportation, and one was in um, business services, business to business, um, professional services too. Um, you, you, you do learn there's a lot more transferability between consumer products and B, you know, people think B2B is one thing, B2C is a completely different thing. The truth is there's mm -hmm. a lot of transferable knowledge across categories, across industries. And, you know, if you're in the, you know, in the fire pit when things are really crazy, and like I said, it was internet 1.0, then there was the crash, then it came back 2.0. You know, you learn so much so quickly that, mm -hmm. You, you can just, you know, you learn not to take it personally. And like I said, when, when you, when you come back into those war room sessions and people give you their feedback, it's about what your customer thinks. It's not what you like, what I like, what my team likes. It's what mm -hmm. is the target audience like and what are they reacting to? What motivates them to click and purchase and follow the breadcrumbs? Because, you know, it's not about me, it's about them. <laughs> and I think, I think so many people lose sight of that. And mm. that's what marketing is. I mean, so, you know, when clients come to me and they say, oh my God, I have this great idea and everyone tells me they love it. And I don't understand why we're not selling more product or more services. And I'm like, great, tell me about everyone loving it. Have you done market research? Who have you talked to? And it turns out they talk to their neighbor, their sister, their friend. Well, guess what? Nobody's going to tell you your baby's ugly if they have a personal relationship with you. Like oh, if you didn't God. talk to your, your target audience and maybe you can't do it. Maybe you need like an ombudsman, a, an independent, objective third party. Maybe you need to do a survey monkey. Maybe you need to do Zoomerang. 
maybe you need to hire a market research professional to mm-hmm. canvas those people so that they're not leading the witness. Because, you know, when people say, well, I asked them if they liked it. And when you're asking a friend, how do you like my website? How do you like my product? And what do you think of this package? Maybe they're not, you know, you're leading them on. They're, they're giving you feedback right to their your face and they know it's something that you care about. You can't trust that. That's like garbage in, garbage out. That's not market research. Oh, so do you find that there's this element of emotional management that comes into play so often that probably gets overlooked because you get so attached and wrapped up in what you're doing as it being part of yourself? You know, that happens a lot and it happens in, you know, small companies. It happens in kind of mid-market companies. It can happen in big companies where somebody's personality, their ego, you know, they feel personally connected. Maybe it's their name on the door. Maybe they invented the product or service. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always just encourage them. Market research is so important. Again, at P&G, they really drill into you the importance of the data. Let the data drive you. Don't let your emotions drive you. And so, you know, if you can get people to buy into the fact, and again, it doesn't, at P&G, it was very expensive. It doesn't have to be expensive, but it has to be legit. And, you know, you can send out SurveyMonkey and Zoomerang for not a lot of money. It can be free, but you got to ask questions in an objective way so that you're getting good feedback. Because if you're asking them questions that are forcing them to give you positive responses, that's not helpful. At the end of the day, that's not going to help you sell more of your product or service. Do you feel like this understanding of how to market has influenced how you've approached business and how you have felt along the journey? So I think the thing about marketing is everybody thinks they're good at marketing. Everybody says, I watch TV, I read magazines, I listen to the radio, I listen to podcasts. So everyone kind of thinks they're an expert in marketing. Like you wouldn't say that to your heart doctor. You wouldn't say that to your car mechanic. You don't assume that like you could go in and do surgery or you could go in and rebuild an engine, but everyone thinks they're like an expert on websites or, you know, so part of it is you're dealing with people that feel like they might be more aware or educated about something that they don't actually have the training in. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that can be a challenge in and of itself. But even if they don't believe that they want to invest in market research, I think if we've learned anything during this COVID period, the last two and a half or so years, whatever assumptions that you made about your market, your business, your product, your service, the world has changed so much since March of 2020 that you have to check in and you have to ask these questions. And it might feel like you're taking two steps back to go one step forward. But if you're making assumptions, you may not make the right assumptions anymore. I mean, think about 
how we work, where we work, how we live, where we travel, all of that has changed in so many kind of essential ways. And just your normal routines at home. I mean, think about things that you just, you know, nobody wore masks four years ago. That that was just a foreign thing. You know, when you think about like the coffee shops that are in bakeries that are near uh, here, near me, those used to be where I used to hold a lot of my meetings. I would meet clients, we'd have lunch, we'd have coffee. Mm-hmm. All of those closed uh, for a, a long time until the vaccine um, came about. And when you went to the coffee shop, you could order through your phone or online and go pick up, but you couldn't go in and sit down. And mm-hmm. if you remember when the pandemic started and everybody was home baking bread, and then you couldn't even find flour at the grocery store, you'd go to your local grocery and you could not find flour. Well, guess what? Those scrappy bakeries and coffee shops in my neighborhood, not even Starbucks. These are like mom and pop neighborhood cafes. When you went online to order your sandwich or order your coffee, they would let you, they had like these Ziploc bags filled with flour because they had commercial distribution. And a lot of the supply chain because all the retail outlets had shut down, there were no more schools, there were no more, you know, people weren't going into restaurants, but there was the commercial chain. So they were dividing their industrial size packages of flour into, you know, one pound and two pound bags for people to pick up. And because they're making sandwiches in the back, they had lettuce and tomatoes and avocados and I started almost doing more grocery shopping at the cafe than at, you know, I, I never bought produce at the cafe ever Mm -hmm. in my life. It was where I went for meetings. And now, you know, you don't even think twice about, oh, they had such good produce. Now, when I put an order in, I might pick up things other than just like coffee or a sandwich. So think about just those little changes in didn't you used to get everything dry cleaned? When's the last time you had anything dry cleaned during COVID? I mean, just think about all the little adjustments you've had to make and the ripple effects of that in every category and in every industry. So make sure that you really understand what the real competitive landscape looks like now, because it may have changed a lot in the last few years. Yeah. There's a theme throughout this whole thing, this whole conversation of being able to identify how to leverage what seems like disaster or could be viewed as it and instead turning it into, or maybe just finding the opportunities in it that are greater than the disappointment that comes from the disaster. Absolutely. And there are a lot of small businesses that pivoted and found these little nooks and crannies and they exploded during COVID. I mean, they found areas where they they didn't even think about it and now they're thriving. And I think those are the businesses being resilient, being tenacious. Those are the, the qualities and traits 
that I think in the in the new normal and the post-pandemic world that we're emerging into, those are the companies that are going to be successful and thrive because they read the tea leaves, they listen to their customers, they see opportunities, not threats, not disaster. They see, wow, we could start offering that and, you know, we could sell more stuff. And that's exactly the world that, that you know, businesses should want to be living in. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Well, it seems as if a lot of this, what has come up has caused people to feel just really anxious and kind of get tight. Um, and if there's, and if they can find a space to be able to relax and allow, it'll shift things. What do you find, where do you find you maybe have those tight, anxious spaces and where have you found you've been able to just relax into what is? So it's interesting before the pandemic, um, uh, you know, obviously we all circulated a lot and you might've gone to a gym, you, you know, I was big into Pilates. I did water aerobics. You know, we belonged to a gym. I did Tai Chi at a studio. I used to meet uh, friends at a coffee shop uh, regularly to knit. And, uh, you know, we did, we called it stitching and bitching. It was really fun. You know, we had a great time. And, um, you know, like I said, the gym closed permanently. Um, the studios closed. Everything kind of migrated to Zoom. And I, I love that I can still see my friends. And what's interesting, I used to spend a lot of time on the West Coast. I currently live on the East Coast. I used to live out there. But, um, you know, I had groups that I was involved in when I was out West. I had groups I was involved in here locally. And the great thing of when everything, my Tai Chi migrated to Zoom, my knitting migrated to Zoom, I was able to actually see more people more regularly in the virtual world online than in the physical world. So in a weird way, the pandemic allowed me to find more space to connect with people on a regular basis. So those became kind of the anchors on my calendar. I had Tai Chi opportunities literally for at least an hour a day, seven days a week. And those just went into my calendar. So I would plan my client stuff around, okay, here, here's when I'm going to take a break and do some Tai Chi and Qigong. Here are the times when I'll be able to knit with my friends in California, my friends here. And everything else kind of worked around that. And I think now that the world has reopened and people are circulating again, I'm really trying to be more intentional with my space because, you know, before the pandemic, there were a lot of times where at night I would try and hit multiple networking events. I'd go to one early for drinks. I'd go have dinner at another. And then someone say, let's go have a drink after and catch up. And I was running myself ragged, you know, and I, I realized by not circulating in that same way, um, it's almost like less is more. I have not kind of gone back to this frazzled, crazy running around, you know, driving here, there, Timbuktu for coffee meetings. 
we learned that, you know, you can have great conversations on Zoom. You can talk to people while you're taking a walk, um, you know, getting exercise, moving, spending more time in nature. I think there were a lot of lessons in COVID that I hope everyone incorporates the stuff that really worked for them. And for me, I, I am being very intentional about putting things on my calendar and I'm no longer double and triple booking my evenings. You know, it's just, it's not necessary. And at the end of the day, it wasn't really fulfilling. I don't, I didn't miss it. That was one of the big surprises to me. I mean, I love hanging out with people. I get a lot of energy from being with people, but I didn't miss doing like all the networking. I probably did more networking in a day or two a week than most people do in a couple of weeks. And now, you know, it's, it really is kind of a less is more. Yeah. Well, that, it seems like that is one of the main things we came to is we, we really can pare down and it's going to be okay. In fact, we actually get more out of that. Exactly. Having longer, deeper conversations with fewer people versus going to a hotel ballroom with 300 people and passing out a bunch of business cards. Yeah. I mean, I love doing it when I did it. But, you know, when you're just doing things on a smaller scale, you can you can go a lot deeper and you can have more meaningful conversations. Oh, agreed. Well, I'm certain that this is um, infused in your business. So what type of client do you love to serve? Who do you want to talk to and how can they find you? So I'd say about two thirds of our clients are in the kind of mid-market emerging market, kind of 2 million to 200 million in revenue. Um, they maybe have a skeletal marketing crew, but they don't, you know, at P&G and at Coke, they had a fully staffed marketing department at every level. And they mm -hmm. had agencies of record for everything. PR agencies, market research shops, uh, advertising agencies. They might have the whole floor at the advertising agency because you're talking huge brands. You know, my clients, um, we do work with Fortune 500 businesses, but those people end up hiring us on a more project basis because they have a specific need that they don't have the actual talent in-house. Yeah. A lot of the clients that use us are using us on both a project basis or and a retainer basis. So maybe we are the marketing department. Maybe it's a technology firm that has like a junior person who can tactically do the social media, but they don't have a strategist that has the voice of the customer in their head. So they bring us in almost like a virtual chief marketing officer to help them strategize, put together the strategy, and then we can direct the junior people to execute. So they don't have to pay us to do all the little stuff, but they need a very uh, thoughtful strategic plan that incorporates things that it's harder to kind of cobble together. And so the fact that I've got a team of a lot of experts that have been doing this for decades, we can come in and have a seat at the table and 
talk to the senior people about the vision and the junior people about the execution and the tactics. But we also work at, you know, with pre-revenue venture-backed startups that maybe don't have any marketing department. And we serve as the kind of blocking and tackling. We can help them do a logo, a tagline, get business cards made, stationary, get their website built. So, you know, we work at every end of the spectrum, but the biggest chunk of our, our business is kind of in the middle. Yeah. It sounds it sounds fantastic to be able to provide that strategy that I feel like is so missing because there are so often, like you mentioned, the junior officers who are like, I know how to do stuff on Instagram or <laughs> I'm great on TikTok. And yet if you don't have that bigger vision, the strategy in place to execute and the reason why behind it, it doesn't matter how many videos you post. Well, and and you raise a good point because a lot of people, they throw so much out there, mm -hmm. but it doesn't really stick because there's no thread connecting at all. Yeah. And what you're doing is you're diluting your brand because on TikTok, you look one way. On Facebook, you look a different way. On LinkedIn, you're trying to be super professional. You know, you can't be snarky, funny, serious, playful, like you can't have different images on different social media channels because when you're building a brand, you're building a relationship, you're, you're building trust. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason why brands like McDonald's or Starbucks are so successful is, you know, any, any McDonald's you walk into anywhere in the world, you have an expectation of a brand and an experience and you know what you're getting. And the same at Starbucks, they might have a local flavor, but you have a very good concept and you have a relationship with that brand. Yeah. And I think a lot of businesses don't think, they think, well, I'm not, you know, and a lot of small businesses that are very driven by the personality of the founder or CEO, they think, well, I'm not LeBron James, I'm not Martha Stewart, you know, nobody cares about me. I'm not really a brand. The truth is everybody's a brand and your business does have a brand. And if yeah. you don't brand yourself, your competition's going to brand you or the market's going to brand you. And you don't, you don't, you want to be in control of that conversation. So, you know, having a narrative, making sure that you know what you stand for, who you're serving, what mm -hmm. support points matter you know, and that it's consistently tied throughout those themes, those messages are in everything that you're doing, no matter what social media platform. And you, you can only reinforce a couple of messages. You can't stand for everything. And mm -hmm. I think that's where people really get confused. They, they want to show like, oh, we do A, B, C, D. And, yeah. you know, think, Think about Amazon. When Amazon started as a brand, they were the world's biggest bookseller. All they did was sell books. And you got, I mean, it's hard to imagine now, but the concept of putting your credit card online and buying a book and trusting them to send it to you and not stealing your number. You know, a lot of people would rather go to Barnes and Noble or, you know, the old fashioned way. 
but mm-hmm. they, they did it with books and people loved it and it worked and they could trust them. Then they expanded into music and they started selling you DVDs and, and then, you know, and now you would buy anything and we all buy everything. We buy our groceries, we buy our clothes, we buy jewelry. You'll buy anything on Amazon and they have your credit card number and, you know, they'll deliver it the next day and we love it. But you have to put a stake in the ground and be known for something and stand for that and reinforce that brand and message and build those relationships. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that strong base, it's hard to extend your brand into other categories and other areas and directions because, you know, people don't know who you are and what you do. I think what you just said is so important that where you stated that if you don't name who you are, if you don't brand yourself, that somebody else will. Yeah. I want to just let that sink in to everybody who's listening. And I, in part, those that are entrepreneurs in general, I think we get impatient. And so we want to move on to the next thing, but you said we need a firm base. And, you know, it's not just small businesses. Remember back in the day when Hertz, you know, Hertz was the number one car rental company and there was Hertz and there was everyone else. There was Hertz and there was everyone else. And then Avis came along and they were number two and they were being thrown into everyone else. And for those of you old enough to remember, Avis came in and said, we try harder. You know, like they were trying to claw back and say, like, basically, we're number two, and there's Hertz and Avis and everyone else. And they tried mm-hmm. to build their brand. Um, and, you know, if there's brand confusion, that can be terrible, too, because you start promoting your brand, and people don't know it's you, and you're moving the category, but you're not moving yourself. And that mm-hmm. happened a lot, if you know, in the battery category, you've got Duracell and Energizer. And every time the Energizer bunny was running ads, Duracell's market share was going up and up and up. And people thought, because the messages were so connected to the Duracell brand, Mm -hmm. people thought the Energizer bunny, bunny was Duracell. Different product, different business. So, you know, you have to carve out your niche You have to know what's different, unique, and special about your category and your business Mm -hmm. and make sure that people tie those those messages to you so that when they need your product or service, they think of you first. Because otherwise, you're promoting the category and your competition's benefiting, but you're not. Yeah. Wow. That there's nowhere else to go from there. There's so much that you just gave us. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your time and (laughs) your hard earned experience. And I've got so many war wounds. I mean, you know, you learn with every, every twist and turn. And like I said, the beautiful thing now, I think, especially for small businesses is you pivot, you, you know, you take your lashings, you get the lesson you're supposed to learn and don't make that mistake again and go try something else and go try something else. So it's about being agile 
and constantly incorporating the latest data, the latest information. And again, don't take it personally. The market can be fickle. There can be new competitors. There's a lot going on. People are dealing with a lot right now. And it might not be about you. Just get out of your own way. It's kind of you and I were talking about this before. A lot of people kind of get stuck and they don't understand why no one's listening to them. Well, try a different channel, like go to a different message and see if that resonates and then try something else. When you when you get the right message and people hear it and they lock in and they start buying you, that's that's it. Now you figured it out. Now promote the heck out of that message and double down on that. But just because you fell in love with something, you know, three versions ago, if the market didn't care and they're not listening, move on. Don't lock into something that just because you thought it was brilliant and you thought it was funny, you're a market of one. That's not a business. Right. Yeah. You're not buying your own stuff. You want other people to. I have a client that says, you got to feed the dog, the dog food he wants to eat. Oh, yes. (laughs) Well, for those listening that want to find you and reach out, where would you like to tell them to go? So the best places are my website, mavensandmoguls.com, and it's all spelled out, M-A-V-E-N-S-A-N-D-M-O-G-U-L-S.com, or look for me on LinkedIn. Paige Arnoff-Fenn. I have a hyphenated last name, but on LinkedIn, they smushed it all together. So no hyphen. It's just Paige Arnoff-Fenn. Or as one of my clients said, she couldn't, you know, because I have an ampersand in my company name and a hyphen in my real name. She said, I can never remember all the words, but I remembered Paige and Mavens and I Googled it and you popped right up. So thank God for search engine optimization. If you forget everything, just Google Page and Mavens and you'll find me. <laughs> I like how that goes together anyways. <laughs> uh, well, Paige, thanks again. This has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, you're welcome. Hey, Katie. Yeah, Mark? Want to do an outro? I sure do. Sweet. Hey, thank you so, so much for listening and making it to the end. Yay, you. So what happens next? Uh, We ask them the things that podcasters are supposed to ask at the end of an episode. Can you please rate, review, download? Subscribe. Mm. Yeah. But why is it important? Because that's how our podcast gets noticed. That's how people find us. It is, and we want all their earballs. <laughs> all the earballs all over the place. We do. Nice. Yeah, so please do all those things. We'll be ever so grateful. And then more people hear your beautiful voice. Or yours. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See you next time. Bye.